You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Steve Toltz is the author of A Fraction of the Whole, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and his second novel, Quicksand, won the 2017 Russell Prize for Humor. His new novel is Here Goes Nothing. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thanks for having me on. You know, this book was so funny, and one of the things I think that is interesting to me is the way you used uh, the elements of the fantastic to um, just turn everything on its side so you can look at the entirety of life from a slightly different and much funnier perspective. So just talk about coming up with, you know, the premise for the book and, and then working it out, some of the the details afterwards. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of a book is always hard to point to pinpoint years after, you know, its conception kind of thing. So, I mean, I can track it to a few points, which was, I remember in 1999, I walked out of the movie Magnolia, and which is a, which is a movie which goes from character to character. And I remember thinking, oh, it would be really fun to write a story that goes from character to character, but then one of those characters dies but we keep following them and then bouncing back between the characters. Um, and then I just kept that idea in my head for about 17 years. And then I started writing this, you know, I always begin with a premise. So the premise of this book was, you know, on its basic narrative level, uh, a couple are living in a house, trying to have a baby, trying to pay the mortgage. Um, and a, a man comes to the door saying that he, grew up in that house he's now dying and he would like to um, spend his final days dying in his childhood bedroom and would they let him in and let him do that so I started with those two things and as I was writing that story this other story came to my mind so I knew that there would be death there would be murder and that we would wind up in the afterlife (laughs) you know that actually happened to us in our house Somebody came to the door and said, well, we're the sons of the people you bought the house from, and we just wanted to see what it looked like now. And, you know, we let them in and around, but it was, it was really creepy. Did it, has it ever happened to you? No, I've been that person. <laughs> I, uh, at some point, you know, I grew up in this one house um, my whole life, basically moved in when I was one, I think. And, I moved out when I was 18 and then I don't know somewhere in my like mid to late 30s um yeah I wanted to uh take my girlfriend to just see where I grew up and went and knocked on the door and uh just said do you mind if we look around and they were pretty cool about it but it, it was it's a ridiculous thing to do I don't know what came over me you know one of the things that I really loved about this book was the uh, kind of world building you did because it doesn't seem like world building because everything's both familiar but very different. But it's a very complicated, the afterlife you've created is really complicated if largely unpleasantly reminiscent uh, of of life uh, in our current uh, situation, which seems to be resembling your afterlife every day. <laughs> <Get Yes. laughs> so yeah, talk about, you know, designing an afterlife. Was it something you did kind of on the fly or did you like say, okay, these are the rules and et cetera? Well, the only one rule I wanted to have was for inexplicable reasons, I wanted that sort of technology to be only for for military and government use so that the people were not I, I didn't have to write phones and computers because you know the way we live now is is so overwhelmed by 
you know, by our 24-hour news, by our and by our addiction to our technologies. I I wanted that out of the out of the world, but otherwise, I was sort of doing it on the fly. And you know, a lot of people ask me sometimes, like, you know, what you know, what depictions in literature of the afterlife were you kind of inspired by? And the truth is, I was inspired by years that I lived in Barcelona and Paris and like <laughs> having to having to deal with like bureaucracies in those places, which like in Paris, it's sort of sometimes it's sort of you feel like you're in like Napoleonic times. Um, and then in, in, in Spain, sometimes you sort of, I don't know, it's like the, it's a different, um, different levels of bureaucracy, which, you know, have different cultural mixes in there. And they're just really interesting. Um, and so I just kind of took a little bit of that. And for some reason, I just had a, had a cold, you know, a, a Cold War Soviet vibe in my mind. Um, yeah, it was just kind of a mix of, of, of those kind of stuff. To me, it felt like, you know, going to sleep where I live in a nice little suburb in America and waking up in Somalia. Yeah, like <laughs> it's a little bit like that. You know, um, I, I really like the three characters that you've created here, the main characters, Owen and, and Gracie and Angus. Yet, I have to say, they're, they're by and large really unpleasant and repellent. It's a, it's a joy to read about them. But, and one of the things I think you do really well is that it turns out that you kind of wonder uh, for a bit of the book why somebody like Gracie will put up with somebody like Angus and, and eventually that's re uh, revealed. But uh, talk about creating characters who are at once compelling and repellent. <laughs> that's just, yeah you know about yourself that's a struggle eh? it is a struggle yeah i mean like uh it, it is a little bit of the like larry david george costanza situation where everyone's <laughs> sort of saying you know telling larry david how awful his character is um yeah it's funny because there's a little bit of me in all of them but um the truth is i i just you know, I write very much for the pleasure of writing. And I feel that if I enjoy writing characters, uh, if I write characters that I enjoy writing, then people will will enjoy reading about them. There is something funny about and, and engaging. I guess readers, uh, you know, myself included, you, above all, you want to be engaged. You don't want to, you, you want to not want to look away. And I think that whether... I mean, writing Owen was fun because um, I really just wanted to have an old-fashioned villain um, and somebody who, you know, can just say the most awful things uh, and someone who delights in saying awful things and being, you know, kind of awful. Um, and the others, as long as you keep the humanity within them, you know, it's very... Uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time just making sure that you can, you believe in the characters, even when they're kind of being outrageous. And I feel like that's all you, that's kind of all you need. You need to show, you need to believe in them and you need to show where they are vulnerable. And if you can show, if you can believe and show vulnerability, then that gives you leeway to kind of um, have them act in weird and amoral and strange and slightly repellent ways because, you know, we, we are drawn to the human in everything. These characters are incredibly human. And I have to say that the prose in this novel is amazing. There are, on any given page, there are about five or ten sentences that you're going to highlight and want to read to somebody else that, a lot of pithy things, a lot of great, you know, aphorisms. It's you, you just pack this book with every kind of gnarly, smart, uh, snarky thing that you can say about the characters or about humanity. Uh, it, 
did these uh, phrases all roll off the tip of your pen once you got going? Yeah, they. I mean, everything comes within the act of writing. You know, I still write by hand, and so um, it's sort of something that happens when the pen hits the page. And it's like I don't kind of write them separately and then work them in. They really do come. Or every time I'm writing, I'm writing a scene. So it just, you know, they do come out while uh, while writing the scene. And I guess you know um, the and you know and I and I wish there was a shortcut to this. I always hope from every book, I'm hoping there's a shortcut. Um, is that you know this? There's a reason why there's like seven years between my books um, because it does take a long time to get that all of that stuff right and to get it um you know it really does it adds up i always think of writing a book for me it's like you know those kind of um pointless paintings like a surat where 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 basically it's almost like um it's almost like every day i'm writing is just like putting another dot on the painting and then you know which seems intolerably slow but like you know amazingly over time you know it builds up and that's the thing is you sort of underestimate um what you can accomplish if you just do a little bit every day and then you know a few years pass and you have a book it, it also seems like a a, a, ma- a masterwork of of character acting in that i mean i could imagine that you could in a movie you could play uh, both Owen and Angus in a heartbeat <laughs> and with uh, today's CGI level stuff you could probably even do crazy <laughs> as well um, nobody I, wants to see me act I assure, <laughs> I assure you okay uh, so talk about um, creating the the separate voices for for each of the characters yeah, well, um, I wanted, uh, well, Angus is, what I like about Angus is that he's he's unread, you know, he's not somebody who's had much of an education, we don't know anything, he doesn't mention really a single book he's read, whereas Gracie, um, you know, seems to have kind of read everything and is, is, is more, you know, thoughtful, intellectual, but Angus has more just kind of a natural intelligence and aversion to belief. Um, he's kind of a skeptic, just kind of a natural born skeptic, um, which was, you know, one of the other fun, uh, I guess, inspirations for me to write, which was like just the idea of an atheist waking up in an afterlife. Um, so, um, yeah, writing those characters very was very different. And, you know, so I, um, I do, I'm, I'm not one of those writers who, um, excuse me, <clears throat> a lot of writers I know, they don't want to read while they write because they don't want to, you know, be, uh, it's, it's not that they don't want to be inspired, but they don't want to be influenced. They want their natural voice to just be pure. Whereas I find the reading, reading and writing is one activity for me. It's sort of like breathing in and breathing out. So um for Angus especially, I really read a lot of Dennis Johnson because the way his characters are so, I don't know, there's just like a, there's a, there's a simple spirituality to them, which, um, you know, is very pared down. And there's also uh, with Angus, there's a, like a very classic Australian character, which is someone who's very laconic. So, you know, he, we may have him, we may be inside his thoughts, but he doesn't say much. Um, uh, and in also that way is I'm always doing the opposite to what I did in the last book. So, you know, my last main character in quicksand was somebody who wouldn't shut up. So I wanted to have a character that was quite quiet. Um, Gracie as well. She's a, um, you know, a wedding celebrant who has these kind of eccentric, uh, wedding sermons and, um, there was actually a period of my life where I considered being a wedding celebrant because as a kind of humorous writer, I had a number of friends who asked me to speak at their weddings, either as like just to give a speech or to be an MC. Uh, so I, I, I looked at that as a career, as a possible backup career. Um, so I was just kind of living that 
alternate reality, which I never, I never uh, ultimately did. You know, the way you use the afterlife in this book to, to look at um, our everyday life is really remarkable. It's this book is just like it, it flays our everyday life by by putting it in perspective from the afterlife you created and it's really fun to see where you're going to go next and, and you mentioned this a bit but one you have a blast with religion in this book i mean <laughs> religion is just the topic that just will always keep on giving <laughs> Well, for you, it's particularly generous. So talk about, you know, some of the coming up with some of the kind of conversations and ideas um, like uh, and I think this is something that I've never heard any religion uh, discuss, which is the idea that what if God made us and then we did not work out to be as planned? Well, there's a lot of ideas that was fun. To, it's funny because, you know, when you're writing The Afterlife, I did think about, um, you know, what other visions of afterlife have there been in, you know, throughout literary history and, you know, um, and, and culture. And in, in the last thousands of years, you know, you've got sort of the afterlife is always, you know, a reward or a punishment. It's... Um, there's, you know, there's an authority figure that's very clear. It's that it sort of has clearly defined rules no matter where you go. Um, so I wanted to kind of confound that idea and just load mystery upon mystery. But the one thing every depiction of any afterlife has always had in common is that it's eternal. And so I wanted to play with that idea. It's like, why should the afterlife be eternal? Um, so the idea that we just, you know, maybe the afterlife is just another 80, 90 years. And then, um, and then who knows what happens when you die in death. Um, and I, yeah, and I do, it's funny because I, when I think about religion and I think about the, the, the philosophy that I like, um, you know, like Nietzsche's eternal return or anything like that. And then I think about, um, like short stories by Borges, like, you know, the, his library, you know, the labyrinth. And um, I, uh, you know, to me, they're all kind of indistinguishable is like, um, I don't really understand why we would settle considering we don't know anything and we have our imaginations and we, and we're guessing everything, why we just sort of choose between one or two ideas and then go, well, I guess it's that one or, you know, so I, I think that the power of religion, and I guess this might be something to do with the Jewish tradition, a little bit of questioning is just sort of, let's just keep guessing, <laughs> you know, let's, let's just put, why not, why not a thousand ideas of what the afterlife could be? And, you know, or, you know, like that, that is the infinite um, is, is how many possibilities there could be. You know, one time I interviewed a neuroscientist. His name is uh, David Eagleman. His oh, yeah. first book was a hundred different versions of the afterlife, where in one, for example, you relive all the minutes of your life that you spent sitting in the car waiting in a stoplight. Then you <laughs> relive all the minutes you spent brushing your teeth years and years <laughs> wow so uh yeah i'm really yeah i really like that that sounds fantastic i need to look at that yeah well i think that that you do a really great job of of occupying that space for example i mean and there's so many it what it results is in great writing and great reading for example i'll just grab a quote out of your book here it was so weird to be dead and running errands I couldn't help feeling limited, human, dirt-bound. My past life was only yesterday. Already I understood that in an eternity with oneself, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> <laughs> you do this so regularly and so often. I think it's a really interesting use of what is typically seen as 
supernatural fiction or science fiction where you use an element of the fantastic. This is, you know, at the afterlife is, alas, unpleasantly much like our life, only slightly worse, and and work that to, to really give us a full and honest vision of what this world seems like, and, and I think that that's a, an incredible achievement. Thank you. I mean, I, yeah, I wanted to, you know, one of the other aspects of this novel was, um, in my mind, it's it's the third part of a very loose trilogy. So my three books all deal with fear, and and you know, I wanted to. In the first book was about fear of death, and my second book was about the fear of like life and suffering, and so I wanted to write about the fear of the opinions of other people being um you know one of the main sort of factors that determines a lot of human behavior and um and it's just funny to me that um when you think about um you know the fact that life is short and we have all these petty worries and I, and you know the greeks and romans they used to bring out the corpse at the banquet you know as if we're so obsessed with ourselves we need we actually have to bring a literal corpse to dinner to remind ourselves that we're going to die like we don't we literally forget um and so i thought it would be interesting you know to really kind of um boil down you know what it is to be human by taking you know by sort of seeing what what might persist beyond the grave it, you know, it, it, it's as if the human race in all of its philosophy and all of its accomplishments thus far is still kind, and it seems true, is still kind of just a, a teenager. <laughs> they think oh, yeah. we think we're going to live forever, and, and there should only be the only things that should be happening are fun and danger, and we don't really <laughs> give a hoot about anything else. That's the humanity in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to say that we're a teenager is is still overstating it. We're, you know, we're, we're toddlers. We're toddlers. Uh, you know, um, one of the things you really have fun with, and what are, that's really nice about this book, is how often you your ability to surprise the reader with something new that seems logical within the terms of your afterlife and, and the world you've created, but you just go, wow, of course that's possible, but I never thought about that. Um, did you have to surprise yourself or did you like have to work at it and say, okay, I've got to figure, you know, out something to just really like knock people on their feet or, or did you like poke around this world and say, wow, that's really a weird idea. Um. No, I think it's just uh, the natural kind of evolution of of story of of me telling a story. Like I just, I really like. I mean, you know, there's a number of things which I'm interested at once, and and they all sort of combine. You know, I really like. I like the kind of novels. I like reading the kind of novels where a character wanders around a city and nothing happens. You're just inside his head. Um, and I love, you know, novels where there's just a lot of story and plot and action. Um, and so I guess I kind of like to combine um, combine those two um, those two forms. Um, and you know, from when I was a kid and started writing, my, yeah, my natural instinct, you know, I, I was never a, like a kid who was a poet. I, I was a kid as a writer. I was a kid who was telling stories and writing stories. So um, yeah, I just did, I just really enjoy um, watching the story unfold for me on the page. And um, yeah, luckily I never really have writer's block. If anything, you know, my problem is I'm just kind of write too slow and I have like 10 million stories that I'll never live long enough to tell. Well, you never know that maybe telling them. Exactly. The after, in the, maybe um, in the afterlife and the afterlife after that. Yeah. You know, uh, once you start get going in this, in this, I think uh, the demands of logic are really interesting because 
the the logic of what you've created allows you to like access perspectives that are not otherwise accessible you know pers- and I, to this I'll, I'll just say that your vision of what ghosts are is it, really really interesting i mean i've read a lot of stories about ghosts and and, and i'm you You've come up with something that's truly original, and, and I think that wow, that, that's amazing. Yeah, it was that was really fun. It was funny because I, as I was writing this, you know, I never show work in progress to people, but um, when people ask you, like, what are you working on next? I didn't ever knew really knew what to say because sometimes I would say, well, it's sort of a fantasy, or then sometimes I would say, I'm trying science fiction. I don't even know what it is now, I guess. Um, but I really did like the idea of um, treating the supernatural as a sort of a technological issue. And, you know, just also that famous Arthur C. Clarke, I guess, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke quote, mm-hmm. quote you know, that, that um, any, what is that? Any sufficiently any advanced technology, technology is indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so just sort of utilizing that there and, and also like, um, and I, I'm sure this has been done, but maybe not, you know, in the way I've done it, but, um, you know, telling a ghost story from the ghost perspective is, is also a fun, a fun way of, um, of writing about it. Well, one of the things that's interesting too, is that your character, when, in the afterlife actually can achieve some the kind of maturity and uh, imply imply by that the human race maybe can achieve some of the maturity that we absolutely is it's impossible for us as uh i guess a toddlerized uh (laughs) (laughs) world conquering intelligence to really understand how immature in many ways we are. I mean, we, we have all this great technology at our disposal, but culturally we're, you know, we're not a lot better than cavemen or, or you know, the uh, uh, moon watcher apes who are chugging around the monolith in 2001. Yeah. Well, the question is really, are we, um, would we always be doomed to be, you know, as kind of self-interested as we are um, and immature as we are, um, no matter how long we lived, or is the problem our lifespan is too short? I don't know. Like what if, you know, uh, maybe 80 years is just not sufficient for real change? We obviously don't know, but, you know, what if we were 1,000 years? um, Would that give us... Would that give us sort of a degree of maturity that we don't have now? It, it, it might. It, looking at the characters in this hollow, I think it might just leech every last bit of patience <laughs> <laughs> and maturity out of us and just leave us at the very end. It's like, you know, even more toddlerized. Yeah, well, you know, it's like the the early on, uh, you know, after waking up dead, he sort of says, the character says something like... Um, you know, they're just horrified at the idea that consciousness is like a radio you can never turn off. Um, you know, the fact that we're just going to go on thinking and thinking and thinking for, you know, forever. Who knows? That sounds terrible. Yeah, that's a, there's an old song by uh, Hawkwind, uh, which was an old, old, old British band that... Uh, characterized uh telepathy in the same way it's like a radio you can't turn off there's yeah. no way to find peace of mind yeah that would be terrible you know um one of the things i really liked is the way you handled uh gracie and her speeches because they were you know sweet and but really weird and yet you can see as as the novel pro- progresses that like Angus, she's somewhat self-absorbed. It's just a, 
a more genial form of self-absorption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, she's, you know, just trying to figure things out and like wants answers. And, you know, I mean, I give her, she's kind of the hero of the novel, I would say, <laughs> yeah. um, in my view anyway. Um, you know, uh, so, but yeah, she is also as kind of complicated and as imperfect as Angus, just in a very different way. I think they kind of complement each other. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think that's one of the the joys of the book. Is that at one point I, I came to this, you know, at first I'm kind of wondering, like as I said, what is she doing with him? But then you realize once once he's dead and and he's kind of uh, trying to uh, looking back on her, and you're seeing her, um, you realize, oh my god, she's really a lot like him. She's in a sense, she is herself willing to just you know just say exactly what she thinks no matter how horrific the people around her find it and, and you know that i think is is a hallmark of, i think of this both this book and quickstand are people who will say exactly what they feel you know the the truth hurts yeah, I mean, that is also a joy. You know, there's like, I always think of this quote by the Romanian philosopher, Sioran, who says something, you should only write things in books that you would never d dare say in real life. <laughs> um, and I mean, that's, I think one of the things that I feel really, that is another impulse for me as a, as a you know, writer, artist, creator, whatever, is um god if you're not going to tell the truth what's the point you know just um yeah being honest but you know you're being honest in your descriptions there's a level of like you want to be you want to write honest sentences um you want you know you want it to feel true and especially what characters think and you know i mean it's what I admire in, in fact, it's what I admire in a lot of like philosophy is I, I don't love getting caught up in kind of semantics and metaphysics and things like that. But I, you know, I, my main interest is sort of with philosophy is the same as with psychology. It's just like my ultimate interest is human behavior and why the hell do we act like we do? Um, and so I definitely enjoy having characters who are also interested in that and who also have insights into that. And, you know, depending on the character, that's what's an, it's an, you know, writing is an interesting thing to do because um, it sounds crazy, but like it actually sounds insane, but like my characters that I create will often have insights that I would not have. You know, that's really interesting. That makes sense. I, that is why we, I think, read is to have that experience where we're with the characters and they realize things that their creators don't, But and, and it strikes us in this, the same way. So it seems revelatory to us so that we as readers can experience the same kind of revel revelations that, that you do. Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely met people who have read my novels and are surprised at how like ordinary I am as a human being. And like, you know, I sense disappointment a little bit sometimes. And but the truth is, you know, that um the the writing on the the yeah, the the result of the of me putting pen to paper is sort of ten percent smarter than I am, and so you know, or maybe even smarter than that. So yeah, it's it's a very strange um, process that yeah that I can't really account for. You know, you do have a lot of fun, take a lot of pot shots at uh, contemporary culture. Um, and, and what's interesting is that 
you're so incisive and so right on. I mean, this is like, a, you know, an absolute pinprick into the, uh, you know, the Hindenburg. Actually, <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, and uh, here's a, a, a brief sample. She thought, surely the wisdom of crowds would not be a phrase if someone were to, tried to coin it today. Yeah, you can put that on the on the the tombstone for for Facebook and and Twitter. <laughs> that is for sure. That is for sure. Yeah, no, I do take a lot of pot shots at sort of social media because I I think it's certainly uh, I think it's we're, I think we've all gone down a terrible path, and that's somewhat sad that I that I can't that I don't know a, a, an adult who isn't addicted to their phones. It's, it's like, it's a mess out there. And, and two, uh, there's a, a scene in this book, I admit I did have to kind of like skim read that involves Gracie. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about here. <laughs> and, and, so is this something that, I mean, it, it what it reminded me of was a scene in the generally bad uh more recent uh ridley scott movie the the last thing he did in the quote alien universe or uh, it was one of those things and, uh, i think i stopped watching those movies years ago oh good good call <laughs> but it, there's a scene in there that that in one of those movies that rivals uh this but not not oh, not quite i mean this is much better so talk about uh writing that scene did you get any uh feedback from from anybody on that yeah i i'm feeling in fact that's the one oh sorry my alarm is going um that is the one scene in which i feel great relief um because people have responded very positively to that scene they you know i um you know as in i mean some of them find it grueling and like you know had to read through their fingers kind of thing but like um exactly there was i i did hesitate i hesitated i was like am i really going to put this in here um but yeah i i felt that bracy was a character that needed to go through a tr trials um so yeah i uh yeah it was but also as as is described in the scene um it is not you know it is something that has happened on the planet earth and uh you know and yeah it's if it's if it's happened i can write about it has that actually um i mean has anybody done that yeah, I mean the I mean I ref the person I reference in the book that they find by googling, that's mm. real. You can look that up. That's but well, I mean, but did they did they live? Has it been live streamed? Oh, live stream? No, that, no, that was me. That's all me. Oh, you're a bad man. Yes, sorry about that. Um, you know, it, it interests me too that um the way you uh, deal with the elements of the fantastic by super ordinarifying them in in terms of the entire world that the character ends up in is is completely fantastic i mean it it's it's been tried a million times good old dante tried it mm. and, and with without as much success i think so, uh, talk about uh, creating a world of that's entirely of the fantastic, yet also at the same time, in every sentence and every uh, experience of the character, you know, super mundane. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in my mind, it is an afterlife fantasy. And so is it heaven, is it hell, is it purgatory, is it limbo? But in my mind, I just, even though I wasn't that explicit, you know, it was, I was kind of taking it as a science fiction concept. So, so that, um, 
you know, what's to say when we die, you know, in, in the same way that if we, if it turns out we're all in a simulation um, and, you know, if we were able to get out of the simulation into another world or as if the afterlife is a series of levels like a video game and we're, this is level one and then the afterlife, the first afterlife is level two or we just kind of wind up in an, you know, you know, in the multiverse, in another, in another universe, in another dimension. We don't know exactly where we are. Um, so it's just, it's more in my mind like a side realm, um, in which it could be like we've all just gone to Havana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that, that that feels about right uh, Havana where there's you know some amenities and and, and a lot of anti-amenities yeah exactly that that's kind of that you know I also spent a bit of time in the Czech Republic and and um and so I'm sort of thinking I sort of ha- had that vaguely in my head as well you know the uh, the you do a great job in this book of you know bringing in you know everyday contemporary events and yet as it because of the extremity of your premise there are entirely recontextualized and you know unfortunately i'm sorry to say one of the things that that you you bring in that is an entirely real event is you know we get have um mass deaths due to uh uh you know plagues (laughs) And, and and that results in in an immigrant crisis for her characters. So that was yeah. a really great uh, twist on that. Yeah, um, transdimensional refugee crisis uh, is what we have. Um, you know, just for better or worse. You know, I, I actually wrote most of that. You know, pandemic portion. You know, in 2019. So I wasn't. Um, yeah, because I, I I think you know a lot of writing is a lot of writing is problem solving. So there was just a point where I had you know Angus in the afterlife and Gracie and Owen just wandering around the house without doing much. And I remember thinking, this is no good. I need something to be going on on Earth. And then this phrase came into my head, which is um, apocalypse on Earth, revolution in heaven. And I just kind of that was like a brief. That I that I ended up writing to, and when I was thinking about, well, okay, what kind of apocalypse, what kind of thing, and you know, when you go through the list, like nuclear war, that's no fun to write. Um, you know, asteroid hitting the, the Earth too fast, and then I was like, oh, we haven't had a pandemic, a good one for you know a good hundred years. Why don't I write about that? Um, of course, I'm being a little bit mean by having the pandemic spring from you know uh, dogs. Just you know, it's sort of a reaction to. You know, uh, everyone's sudden obsession with dro- you know with dogs that I found in the last decade, mm. um, which is kind of an interesting turn. I think it has something to do with a lot of a lot more people like living alone, a lot more people being single, um, and you know, people really like with their fur babies. Uh, so you know, a little mean spirited of me to give give the dogs uh, the plague, but um, yeah, it was just one of those coincidences that as I you know I I do a lot of thematic research for my books. Like if I'm going to write about dreams, then I'll read you know Freud and Jung. But I don't do a lot of technical research. I like to just use my imagination. But I really did read lots of books in 2019 on pandemics, and then it was annoying after having taken the pains to kind of get the language right to just turn on the news and see every news reader just like blurting out all this dialogue I'm like I could have just lifted that <laughs> easier said than done there's you know the idea uh one of the things that you, you deliver or do really well too is um Angus is an orphan who has uh, uh, never met his parents and, and turns out they're in the great majority <laughs> as well. So, you know, th- this is an interesting way for, 
you know, you to dissect a character. I mean, it's really unique in terms of your ability. You do a great job of using the premise that you've come up with to just, okay, let's take a look at that. It looks really different now. Yeah. Yeah, it was... um yeah, that was a kind of a fun idea. It's like also like, who are you going to meet in the afterlife? You know, you're going to meet your old girlfriend. You're going to meet your parents. You know, it's like, it's also the afterlife is incomplete in that. I think, you know, the, the numbers are not certain, but maybe it's only a third or half of the people. It's like, where does everybody else go? We don't know. Um, so, yeah, it was just definitely this, Sometimes you get lucky enough to come up with a premise in which there are so many avenues you can go down. There are so many possibilities that present yourself. Um, I mean, I really could have written three different versions of this book or long versions of this book, or, you know, I mean, not to say I'm going to write a sequel, but, you know, there's room to, you could just keep going, you know, yeah. how many afterlifes are there? Well, there's um, one thing you do, I think, really quite brilliantly is um, suggest that uh, a man who, who might have had some intuitions about the afterlife is uh, Arthur Miller. Yeah, I don't know why I picked Arthur Miller out of, out of all the playwrights. Um, I think it's because I, I thought I've always it was interesting that he had a child that he kind of hid in a, a way and and I and um he you know the, he had a I can't remember what the, he might might have been a down syndrome child or I, I I can't remember but he definitely put this child somewhere you know in an institution and um never saw him and then um as far as I know and then you know the idea of of a, a playwright of that stature coming to the afterlife and you know dealing you know dealing with the things that he couldn't couldn't deal with on earth um yeah there's a there's a there's a scene where there's a character trying to give um you know trying to sell sort of secondhand books basically to to the character and of course there would be you know um whether it's Herman Melville or, you know, just a whole bunch of artists would continue their work um, as they came over. That's another avenue I could have, I could have gone down. Uh, for sure. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I look forward to your, to your Borgesian, you know, library of the afterlife. <laughs> All the books that they, they got to, they got to wrote after they died when they could figure out how things were, were going to turn out in reality. Exactly. not so well yeah there's like henry miller's uh hexus i think i just yeah i just kept going with their you know jane austen's dreams and nonsense just coming up with titles that i feel like that's a that's a title they might have written if they had woken up in the afterlife and, and i think this uh once again speaks to the you know the strength of your premise and, and your ability to write um because one of the things that we never feel in this book, it's constantly hilarious. I mean, I, I was laughing out loud for much of reading this book, but I never feel like you're uh, telling jokes. And I think that's an interest. You know, I just realized that, that it's just, you're funny. So talk about humor without jokes. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's sometimes that's about the you know the placement of the words in a sentence in that you know um, if you're constructing a joke it you know jokes have a certain structure and then the laugh is at the you know is at the end of the sentence and sometimes just putting the humorous line in the middle of a sentence instead of at the end kind of diffuses it from it being a joke um yeah i can't you know it's very hard to speak about that because that there's something that happened <clears throat> in the formation of me as a writer where i was young and you know um reading a multitude of things including like uh, i was very influenced by early woody allen prose pieces that he used to write for the new yorker 
I used, I obsessively read those um, in my teen years. Um, and yeah, and I, I feel that it, it became somewhere between, you know, the age of 10 and the age of 20, as I was writing, um, it just, when I put pen to paper, you know, it comes out in a humorous style and that's just now my style. So um, it's sort of inescapable. I mean, I suppose I could write something, you know, very serious without any humor, but I don't know if I would enjoy it. Um, you know, it strikes me, this is absolutely tailor-made to become a TV series. You, you could hmm. just, this is something that could run for seasons upon seasons. I, you know, you, so yeah, ha, has it been optioned or, hmm. I mean. No, not yet. I have someone who sent it out around. Um, I sort of see this one as potentially like a movie, mm-hmm. but um, but yes, it could it could be either. Um, well, I, I think one of the, the the reason I say that is because this is a bottomless pit of jokes and humor, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and no matter how low you go, I think uh, you know America's going to keep ahead of you. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. I'm look, I'm living in America at the moment. I've been here almost eight, eight years. Um, I'm in LA at the moment. I was in New York before that, but I'm, I'm just about to move back to Australia. It's, it's all too much in here now. I'm, I'm out. I'm out. I've had enough with you guys. Well, we will never get enough of you. I've been speaking with Steve Toltz. His new novel is Here Goes Nothing. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thanks a lot. It was great to chat. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.